0: Well, I invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's holy and Aaron and inspired word to Jeremiah 32. Jeremiah 32. You'll find that on page 661 of the pew Bibles in front of you. Jeremiah 32. And we're going to be considering uh, this morning verses 36 through 44 just a, a brief word about the background of this passage anytime uh, we come to a, a place in the middle of the book it's good to know where we're at and as my mom would always tell me we're behind the preposition so yeah. um, so w- what's taking place here jeremiah thirty two this is taking place sometime in the year five eighty eight five eighty seven bc and Uh, If you're mindful of what was taking place in Israel around that time, you know that this was shortly before the the city of Jerusalem was finally destroyed and taken over by Babylon. which took place in 587, 586, somewhere around in there. Jeremiah 32, verse 2, the beginning of the chapter, uh, speaks about Babylon actually in the process of besieging the city. So this is going on during the the time Jeremiah receives this word when we come to verse 36. And this this word at the beginning of the chapter uh, comes to Jeremiah, and Jeremiah is told to, to buy a piece of land from a cousin, to have everything notarized, and, and to put the deed in a safe place. Now, th- think about that for a moment. If you're Jeremiah, you receive this word from the Lord to go buy property... In the city that's being, as we speak, taking over, uh, taken over by Babylon. You know, I, I can imagine Jeremiah's thinking, well, what good will this piece of property be, uh, whenever Babylon takes it? So Jeremiah's a bit perplexed about this. The city is, is being destroyed, being besieged. What good is the deed he's thinking to himself? So, so what does he do? What, what do we do anytime we're perplexed? By the word of the Lord, well, we go to prayer, don't we? And that's exactly what Jeremiah does. and And while Jeremiah is praying, uh, the Lord answers him, and he, he gives him a twofold response. and And the first response, you'll find it in verses twenty six through thirty five. And just to summarize, God there is reaffirming the coming judgment upon His people for their sins. So He's not buying the piece of property. In light of the avoidance of judgment, this is going to take place. Babylon's going to continue besieging the city. They're going to take it over. The people are going to be taken away into exile. But that's only the first part of the answer. The second part of the answer is in verses 36 through 44, which we'll be considering this morning. God has reaffirmed the coming judgment. But through the judgment, He reaffirms His promise to bring His covenant people back from Babylon to restore the city of Jerusalem and to set his face toward his people for good forevermore. And so that's the context where we pick up in verse 36. Look with me at verse 36. And hear now the word of the Lord. Now therefore, says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the city of which you say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence, Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place, and I will make them dwell in safety. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. And I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. For thus says the Lord, just as I have brought all this great disaster upon this people, so I will bring them all the good that I promised them. Field shall be bought in this land of which you're saying it is a desolation without man or beast. It is given in the hand of the Chaldeans. Field shall be bought for money and deeds shall be signed and sealed and witnessed in the land of Benjamin. In the places about Jerusalem and in the cities of Judah and in all the cities of the hill country in the cities of Shephalah, and in the cities of the Negev, for I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as we come before your word now, we would receive a recognition of our sins and the need for judgment, but at the same time, the grace that we receive in Jesus Christ, who bore that judgment for his people and bought all of the promises that we read of uh, for the good of your people in him. Amen. Well, uh, I, th- I thought a while about what, what I should preach on today. It's Right to Life Sunday. And if you're familiar with Right to Life Sunday, you're familiar with um, the the atrocities that our country in so many ways celebrates in abortion and end-of-life issues. Uh, that we will come to toward the end of our sermon, but at the same time, uh, it, it overlapped with a, uh, a very joyous time of welcoming new members and especially the baptism uh, of one of our covenant children, Josiah. So I, I, I decided to preach on Jeremiah 32 and to address the, the issue of why we do this as a congregation. Why do we, we baptize uh, children of believers. Now, because not, not everybody does that. Not not all of the churches in this area, certainly, but uh, in Christendom, uh, practice infant baptism. They have the same views that we do. In fact, a Baptist pastor and a Presbyterian pastor had said we're having a friendly debate over the issue of baptism. And the, and the Presbyterian is asking, well, d- well, does the baptism count if the water comes up to the person's knees? And the Baptist says, no. Well, what if the water comes up to the person's hips? And the Baptist says, no. Well, what if the water comes up to the, to the person's shoulders? Right? Baptist says, nope, still no. So the Presbyterian says, oh, so let me get this right. So the water has to be above the person's head for it to count? Exactly, says the good Baptist. Well... The Presbyterian responds, well, we're, we're good to go then, because I always start pouring the water above the baby's head whenever I baptize. So, and We're not that far apart, are we? Well, I didn't grow up a Presbyterian. I grew up a Baptist. I went to a Baptist seminary. Uh, so I'm very familiar with uh, the differences in views that Christians hold on this. And I, I think really there are three main points of debate, healthy debate, Christ-centered debate, not arguing for argumentativeness sake, but arguing in light of the Scriptures, searching the Scriptures, and seeing what the Word of God teaches us on these issues. I think there are really three main uh, points uh, of debate amongst evangelical Christians. Now, there's a, a variety of different views of baptism Uh, There's uh, the Mormon church and their views of baptism. There's the Roman Catholic view. And I'm thinking here in particular about evangelical, Christ-centered, gospel-saturated churches. And I think the three main points of disagreement focus on what we call the meaning, the mode, and the subjects of baptism. Uh, What does baptism mean? Um, Is it a sacrament or just merely a memorial? And then you've got the debates over the mode. Is, can you pour? Do you have to sprinkle? Do you have to be immersed under the water? And you've got debate over these, the subjects of baptism. So who ought we to be baptizing? Only those uh, who are of age to make a profession of faith? Only believers? Uh, or believers together with their children? So there's points of disagreement. And what I want to do this morning is take a few minutes and, and consider the third of those three points. Because in my view, as I've studied this and wrestled with it, I think really that's the main issue. Uh, Who are the proper subjects of baptism? Who ought we, as a church, to be baptizing? I think most agree, even even Reformed and non-Reformed Christians, will agree that baptism is a sign that a person is a member of the church. We're all in agreement on that for the most part. The, The real question is, who's the members of the church? Or who are the members of the church? Is it believers only? Or is it believers and their children? Now, the answer to that question really settles the debate, I think. Uh, If Scripture teaches that the children of believers are members of the New Covenant church, then they have every right to the sign of church membership. They should be baptized. So that's the question I want to take a few moments and consider with you. This morning is is this, are the children of believers really members of the church? Or to put it another way, put it in the way Jeremiah puts it, is God still the God of us and our children? Is he still the God of believers and their children? So I want to consider three things with you this morning. The first point I want to make is this, that God has always been... In his covenant with his people, the God of believers and their children, He's always done that. That's the way He's always entered into a relationship with His people. And then the second thing I want to show you is that God is still, He is still the God of believers and their children. But this this isn't just this isn't a lecture. It's not a classroom lecture. This is a sermon, and so we need to ask the "so what" question. So if if I've been faithful to the text, I'm, I'm hopefully at least showing you the warrant in Scripture for doing this, but then the question comes, well, how do I live my life different this week in light of this? Okay, so believers and their children are church members. Well, how how does that change me this week? How can I use this teaching from the Word uh, to be more like Jesus this upcoming week? So, I want to argue that it really does matter. So, God has always been And still is the God of believers and their children, and this really does matter. There are concrete, practical implications for our day-to-day living in light of this. But the first point I want to make is that God has always been the God of believers and their children. Now, there is a principle in Scripture that I'm going to call the covenant household principle. Presbyterians almost always seem to throw covenant at the beginning of anything, don't they? It's a covenant potluck. It's Covenant Children, Covenant Sunday School. Well, sometimes we we use it too much, but uh, I think there's certainly an appropriate sense in which the Scriptures focus on covenant, right? It's a very important theme. God works out His plan and His purpose in history with His people by way of covenant, of of relationship. And and from God's perspective, an oath-bound commitment, between God and His people. And there's, there's a running principle throughout the Old Testament that God covenants, enters into relationship, not simply with individuals, not just with believers, but with whole households. So the covenant household principle. And the, the, the formula that you'll find frequently in the Bible goes something like this. When, when God enters into covenant with His people, He uses the formula, "...to you and to your children." Or your translation might say to your seed or to your offspring. Two groups there, to you, to the adults, and to your children. So God enters into covenant not simply with individuals, but with families. And so let me just let's just take a survey of some of the Old Testament covenants and just, just see the running principle throughout. Take, take the Garden of Eden. Take the covenant with Adam. What we know from Scripture is this covenant of works, as we call it, wasn't simply with Adam, but Adam as the representative of everyone who descended from him. Now, you can read about this in passages like Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15, and others, where Adam represents all of his children. And we know Adam being the the head of the human race. That's everybody. So we all come into this world in covenant through Adam, according to the covenant of works. But when the covenant of grace is established, we, we see the same household principle continuing. So take the covenant with Noah. Listen to Genesis 9, 9. God says, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. There's that household formula. Now, with Noah, yeah, of, of course, the covenant is made with all of creation, did not it? With the birds, with the fish, with, the, with everything, but it's by way of extension, as it were, an extension from God's covenant with Noah and his household. So you see the formula with Noah? Listen to Genesis seventeen seven. This is the covenant with Abraham. God says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring, your children, after you. So we see it in the garden, we see it with Noah, we see it with Abraham, we see it with Israel. Deuteronomy 29, 9-12, Moses says, You're standing here today, all of you, before the Lord your God, the heads of your tribes, your elders, and your officers, all the men of Israel, and listen to this, your little ones, your wives, and the sojourner who is in your camp, From the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water so that you may enter into the sworn covenant of the Lord your God which the Lord your God is making with you today. It's comprehensive. Same formula. Even with the covenant with David, we see it. Psalm 89, verses 3 and 4. You've said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Now, we know... That all of this is channeling toward Christ, who is the ultimate seed of Adam, seed of Abraham, the ultimate offspring of David. Yes, no doubt about that. But that doesn't negate the fact that as God is working out that plan, he's doing it with the whole people. And he's doing it by way of this covenant household principle. Now, here's the big question that we're facing. I don't think there's any doubt that God works with covenant households throughout the Old Testament. But here's the big question, right? Does the covenant household principle continue in the New Testament? Right? It's, and it is, after all, new. Maybe it's different. Maybe that changed with the coming of Christ. Well, I want to say that it does continue. And I want to give you three considerations of why it does continue. The first is is a principle of interpretation that we should always expect God to be working the same way, unless He tells us otherwise. Just think of it like this: If if a new governor uh, begins to um, to to work here in the state of Ohio, we don't jump on the interstate assuming that all the traffic laws are off limits until they're reaffirmed. Right? You're going to get a ticket in a heartbeat with that. You jump on the interstate, regardless of the fact that there's a new ruler, a new governor, and you assume the laws are going to be the same until you're told otherwise. So you you, you file your taxes the same way, you obey the same speed laws, you assume things are going to work the same way as they did with the prior administration. Well, I don't think that's any different in Scripture. When Jesus comes to be king in the new covenant, we don't assume that all bets are off, that everything's now completely different. But the principle of interpretation in Scripture is that we should assume that God is going to continue to work in the way that He has worked for thousands of years with His people unless God very clearly tells us otherwise. Now, the second point is this. The New Testament never tells us otherwise. The New Testament never repeals this covenant household principle. Now, there is certainly expansion in the New Testament, isn't there? Right, No longer is God's, are, are God's people a single nation, a single ethnicity, right? We rejoice, all of us in this room probably, maybe maybe not all of you, I don't know, but uh, certainly the majority of you, aren't you thankful that God's people isn't just simply ethnic Jews? That we are Gentiles in this room, we have been brought in, streaming in as it were from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people, there is no doubt an expansion in the new covenant but that's very different than contraction and in, in other words god didn't have to get rid of the households in order to bring in the gentiles he still does both this this wonderful church that we celebrate as a gift from god is very big there's room for all kinds of people there's room for households and even more compelling this is the third point is that This household principle is explicitly repeated, reaffirmed in the Bible. And we see this very clearly from Jeremiah 32. So look with me again at 32. And as we see that God is still the God of believers and their children. So Jeremiah 32, the first point is this. Jeremiah 32 is definitely speaking about the New Testament church here. Look at verse 40. Verse 40. God says, I will make with them an everlasting covenant. You see that? He's not speaking here about anything that went before. He's speaking about something He's going to do in the future. And the New Testament tells us that this everlasting covenant is the new covenant. In fact, if you just flip back a few pages, you'll see in Jeremiah 31, that's exactly the word He uses. Jeremiah 31, verse 31 behold days are coming declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel now don't get confused whenever we say covenant and testament that's that means the same thing same word the New Testament is the New Covenant it's that covenant that Jesus spoke of uh, whenever he inaugurated the Lord's Supper and so many other places in the New Testament but just, just the point I want to make is this Jeremiah 32 is talking about the New Covenant between 31 and 32, he's referring to the same covenant, the same people Israel, the same formula, I will be their God, they will be my people. The same promises of a new heart and putting the fear of God in his people. And Jeremiah 31 is quoted. It's the longest quotation in the New Testament of the Old Testament. Is in Hebrews 8. It's quoted again in Hebrews 10. Look at 2 Corinthians 3. Look at the institution of the Lord, just everywhere in the New Testament, saying the church is the new covenant community. In fact, Paul says in Galatians 6.16, he calls the church the Israel of God. Because when Jesus comes, his people are not simply Jews any longer, but they're Jews and Gentiles. We, at Zion Reformed, are the new covenant people. Now, there's, there's the rub here that people often get caught up on. What about this land promise, right? Doesn't Jeremiah 32 talk about this land promise? Isn't that something that the um, uh, Left Behind series teaches us is yet to come and, and so many other places? Well, there's a lot we could say. That's This is a sermon for another day. But uh, a couple quick points. Yes, he is talking about the physical land in Palestine. And in fact, he's talking about this being fulfilled 70 years from this point. He's talking about the return from exile. He's talking about Babylon being destroyed, the the kingdoms switching, and God's people returning. So no doubt there's an immediate fulfillment, but this is is a type of something much larger in Scripture. This land promise. Just to keep it short, the New Testament tells us That the land promise for God's people isn't just a little geographical spot in Palestine. No, brothers and sisters, we are going to inherit the earth. There's a new heavens and a new earth that God's people are going to receive when Jesus comes back. That is how this passage is ultimately fulfilled. That's all I'm going to say about the land. So the, the point I'm making is this is definitely referring to the new covenant. So why take time to stress that? Maybe you're looking at that and that's pretty obvious. Look again at verse 39. Here's Jeremiah's description of the people in the New Covenant. He says, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. And then notice the household principle again. For their own good... And for the good of their children after them. Now, this isn't just in Jeremiah 32. If it were only here, if this was the only verse we had, that would be enough, wouldn't it? God doesn't have to repeat himself. He's clear, isn't he? That the new covenant church consists of believers and their children. But just, it's pervasive. Let me just read to you a few other passages that speak about the new covenant. And that highlight this principle of households. Isaiah fifty nine twenty one. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or children. Or out of the mouth of your children's offspring. This is generations of God's household principle. From this time forth and forevermore. Listen to Ezekiel 37, verse 25. They shall dwell in the land that I give to my servant Jacob, where your fathers live. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. Speaking about Christ. Now, it's not just in the Old Testament either. Here's one from the New Testament. Acts 2.39, as we read earlier. For the promises for you and for your children... And for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Do you see how pervasive it is? We should expect the principle to continue. We're never told that it doesn't continue. It's never repealed, but it's explicitly reaffirmed even when we get to the New Testament. So the conclusion we need to draw from the scriptures is this. God is still the God of us and our children. And and by the way, this is most helpful for understanding some of these passages in the New Testament. Like how in Acts, there's some of these household baptisms. And why Paul addresses children in the epistles. And, and why Jesus takes up infants in his arms and he blesses them. God is still the God of us and our children. So this is a sermon, it's not a lecture. right? So the question is, is this, for us, so what? Why does it matter to me? How should I think and feel and act differently now knowing that God is the God of us and our children? Well, let me give you three implications for application. Now, The, the first is, is fairly basic. It's that we ought to baptize our children. That's one practical way we can apply this that we did this morning, in fact. That as members of the church they're entitled to the sign of that membership. So I think we ought to baptize our children, but but let's get even more practical. Let me me tie this back into what we're recognizing today in, in Right to Life Sunday. Look back at the text for a second. I want you to contrast what God says in verse 39 about how He values children and in how God's people were valuing children At this time, look at verse 35. Here, God is describing the the wickedness of His own people. He says, This they built the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and daughters to Molech. What He's referring to there is the practice of sacrificing their children by fire to an idol. Now, Our culture today does the exact same thing. Now, it's not Molech that they're sacrificing their children to. It's other causes, isn't it? They're other idols. But we need to understand, brothers and sisters, whether they're outside the womb or inside the womb, to destroy a child's life is desperately wicked in God's sight. Look, look at how God describes their act. Though I did not command them, nor did it even enter my mind. The God who knows everything, He's saying it didn't even, it didn't even enter my mind that they should do this abomination. Now, I, I don't know every individual in this room. I don't know what your past experience has been. There may be someone here who's who's been through something like this. There is much grace and forgiveness. For even people who've had an abortion. You need to hear that this morning. No one is too sinful for the gospel. Amen? But we need to also understand how sinful such a practice is. Only then can we really see the grace offered in Christ. So, so that's what God's people were were doing to the children. That's how they were treating and thinking about children. And look at look at God again in verse thirty nine, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever, for their good, and for the good of their children after them. God is valuing children, and so ought we, brothers and sisters. You know. There's, a, there's a, a statement in Psalm 22, verses 9 and 10. You, you've probably heard this before. Psalm 22 says, Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust at your mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth. And listen to this. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. That's covenant. And God is in covenant, with his people, even in the womb. And he's, he's not in covenant, he's not in relationship with, he's not seeking the good of fetal tissue. Right? He's seeking the good of a, of a human being, of a person, that he knit in this womb to have a relationship with. That this person would come out into this world, and from youth up, be delighting in him, and be receiving good from him. So we should be valuing this precious gift of children. But here's the third and last point, and then we're going to close. We should be instructing our children. Baptizing them, valuing them, but also instructing them. The promises that we read in Jeremiah 32 are not causes for passivity. Promises do not entail passivity. They entail proactivity, if anything. Because God has given parents and children such wonderful promises, we should labor expectantly to see them realize these promises for themselves. Now listen, being a part of the visible church doesn't save anybody. Did you hear that? If you're a part of the visible church, that doesn't save you. The only thing that saves us is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you understand that? Paul says in Romans that not all is real is Israel. It's not just the externals. We have to trust in Christ ourselves. But just li- listen to Isaiah 44, 3-5, through and how he weds the promises of God with the responsibilities of his people. Listen to this from Isaiah 44. He says, For I will pour water... On the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground, I will pour my Spirit upon your offspring, upon your children, and my blessing on your descendants. And then listen to how they respond. Listen to the responsibility they take up for themselves. In light of the promises, they shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Do you see that? This covenant child is claiming... God is his own God. He's making profession. And another will call on the name of Jacob. Another will write on his hand the Lord's and name himself by the name of Israel. So children, you have wonderful, marvelous promises from your covenant Lord. But with those privileges and promises, you have a great responsibility to personally trust in him through the gospel. And parents... We have a great privilege of receiving these children who we should value, but we have a great responsibility to train them up in in a culture saturated with gospel, modeling it for them in the home, bringing them together with God's people to worship and hear the gospel, living it out day in and day out in the mundanes of life, training them up in the way of the Lord. So both children and parents need to hear these promises, not as a cause for passivity, but to be active and to be laboring prayerfully, but in light of the promises expectantly for God to be working for the good of not only us, but for our children as well. So as we close, let me just address those who may be here who who didn't come up in a Christian household. Maybe you've never been to church. Maybe this is your first Sunday. And you're hearing me talk about all these covenant promises of God and His people. And, and you come from an, an what we'd call an unchurch background. I want you to know that God's grace reaches through households. But it reaches beyond households as well. Isn't that the wonderful... Listen again to Acts 2.39. For the promises for you and your children... And, and now listen... And for all who are far off, that's people who didn't grow up in the church, who don't have a Christian upbringing, who haven't heard the gospel, who aren't part of the church. The gospel is for them as well. It's for you as well, if you're hearing this sermon and you've never even stepped foot in the church. God says, all whom the Lord calls to himself will benefit from this promise. See, there's only one hope for sinners. Whether you are a 10th generation member of the church or whether you've never stepped foot in the church, there's one hope for both of us. One hope, and it's what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. Taking the wrath that we deserve for our sin so that everything that we receive in Christ through faith would always and only be for the good of us and for our children after us. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and we give you praise for the marvelous ways in which you have set your face toward your people for their good. And we thank you for the gift of parents, for the gift of children. We recognize that not everyone in this room has children, but we all have the promise of God in the gospel of forgiveness through him. And we pray in His name. Amen.